So we're talking today with Paul Dale, and he is um, he's a PhD student at Birmingham Law School, and he is researching on Jane Austen. Uh, <laughs> take two. Uh, <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Research at OU Law School. Today I have a talk with Paul Dale, one of the many associate lecturers at the law school. We talk with Paul about his PhD project on John Austin, an early legal philosopher. Paul's project is a reimagining of Austin. We talk about Austin's life and about how his religion and the intellectual community that Austin was a part of influence his views on law, morality and politics. Hope you enjoyed this episode and if you want to find out more about Paul, Check out the notes in the description. So we know most about John John Austin's theories from our reading of Hart. Um, and Hart doesn't give the best light to John's uh, uh, to Austin's um, writings and his ideas. Um, so let's start by asking what did Hart write about uh, Austin and what you think he got wrong? Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I certainly do argue that, that most people in jurisprudence do um, view John Austin through Harshian sort of spectacles, mm -hmm. so to speak, and, and that's hugely influential on um, modern positivist thinking. Uh, and certainly you influential on, on the education of jurisprudence in relation to positivism. For me, I think the first thing that Hart does is he conflates John Austin with um, some of Jeremy Bentham's ideas okay. and also um, some of Kelson's ideas. So his first chapters in the concept of law, uh, Hart comes up with what he terms the command theory of law. Now, now, John Austin does use the word command quote. It is central to his concept, but but there's so much more to uh, John Austin, I would argue, than than this idea of of a command theory of law. Mm -hmm. Now, um, what Hart says at the beginning, and Hart acknowledges this, that that it is um, a command theory of law. He, he speaks about essentially made up of Austin. And um, however, in his notes at the back of the concept of law, he does, he does certainly give credit to Kelson and Bentham. Um, he, but he says it's, it's largely made up of Austin, but, but, but he also he expressly states that, that the aspects that are confusing, that he'll sort of fill the gaps mm -hmm. um, kind of thing. So what we've got with a command theory of law that Hart puts forward is, is Hart's interpretation of, of these three theorists. But what mainstream jurisprudence tends to do is to take that command theory of law as if it belonged to John Austin, but okay. it doesn't. It's, 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 Hart's, it's Hart's conceptual framework of what the three of them are to get it together doing. So, for instance, what Hart's method is, this linguistic analysis, in my view, is this linguistic analysis of law. Um, Hart belongs to, or well, he belongs in the law school at Oxford, he works quite extensively and quite closely with the linguistic department. Mm -hmm. um, there's some historical evidence of that, and uh, so much so that, that his office was was amongst the linguistic department. Mm -hmm. um, so he works with a guy called another guy called John Austin, John L. Austin, 
um, not Arjun Austin, who who has a linguistic analysis on on society's conditions and on the way that the words can throw light on the meaning of of things, and um, uh, and a sort of Wittgenstein approach to uh, analysing society by by using words or using the meaning of words, and um, and so when what Hart does in taking this linguistic approach, he, he criticises the word command. And um, and and he turns the word command into something like an order. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and and he says that this he actually expressly states this is what Austin refers to as a command as an order. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he links to that what Kelson said about the word sanction, not what Austin said about the word sanction. Um, so Kelson and Jeremy Bentham to an extent use the word sanction as something like a criminal punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, John Austin never used the word sanction in that context. Uh, forgive me, he 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 did use the word sanction in that context, but he also spoke about it on a wider level, and and he spoke about the use of a command. John Austin did is um, backed with a sanction, but something from a sanction as large as a sanction down to something as minuscule as a fear of a disadvantage, mm-hmm. For, and also about the fear of the liability. Of a disadvantage, the fear of a liability, of a sanction, uh, and what John Austin was offering was was essentially a, I guess, an early psychological sort of theory of the mm-hmm. way people behave. Um, the way that that Hart puts forward this command theory of law, he likens it quite famously to a gunman analogy, um, uh, where he says that a gunman to a bank teller. Um, that has asked them to hand over the the money, or, or orders them, I should say, to hand over the money. That in handing over the money, the bank teller and Hart uses a focus on words. The bank teller can hardly be said to be under an obligation mm-hmm. in handing over the money, because with obligation comes um, a an idea of respect, a bit like the obligation he used in the example of the military commander, um, who where the soldiers are under an obligation to the military commander. There's an, a, a series of respect. That you shouldn't, you can't be under an obligation to the gunman. Um, but what the word that would be better used is obliged. You could be obliged to hand over the money, mm-hmm. but in no way you can be under an obligation to hand over the money. Um, and then he says, "This is what Austin's." He actually says that Austin's Austin's command is, mm-hmm. is the gunman's order. Um, however, when you look at Austin's words and you go to the province of jurisprudence, determined, um, he uses the word, he does use the word command. In, in a sense of um, first of all, he doesn't. He says it's a, a command cannot be a legal command in um, if it's referring to a singular act. Which so hard to refer to a singular act of a okay. of a of a gunman, uh, and he says it's, it's general towards the the people at large. But but he also refers to the command a command becoming. And I agree, it's quite an antiquated way of looking at the language, the command. Um, but as a, as we've spoken about today, it does come from a, or he's influenced largely by a sort of divine command theory, which he, he links to to religious aspects. Really, but the command for John Austin is tied in with respect. It's tied in with a hierarchical order mm-hmm. in society, and and Hart denies that that Austin say, or, or Hart denies that Austin says that, or Hart, I should say, Hart denies that this command theory of law does that. And when Hart then speaks about the sanction how the sanctions used, 
it, it likens it to criminal punishment. So, so Hart is essentially saying that this command theory of law, this order-based way of looking at law, and um, in having this sort of punishment sort of attached to it, or the threat of a punishment, that not all laws are like that. Right. Um, so Hart is saying that that this way of looking at law and law, law all about orders and commands doesn't account for things such as contract law, the law of wills, marriage law, all those kind of things. Um, but the thing is, Austin does speak about um, uh, Austin do, does does speak about a more of a fear of disadvantage as being a sanction rather than a criminal punishment. Hart talks about um, John Austin's sovereign as if it's more of a person, mm -hmm. whereas, whereas John Austin does go to great lengths to speak about um, the idea of a sovereign power being behind right. this, as a, and he's talking more about power relations rather than a specific sovereign as such. So we're getting close to Austin now, so let's contextualize all of this, because between Austin and Hart, there is a century almost between Austin's lived experience and Hart's lived experience and Hart's book um, and Austin's writing. So Austin is writing his, the, his lectures um, more than 100 years before Hart actually comes to them. Um, so let's contextualize Austin's world. So who is he? Where does he come from? Uh, where does he live? Etc. Okay, so so uh, Austin, he was uh, born in uh, in Suffolk, uh, just outside of Ipswich, and he uh, grew up in a, in a Unitarian family, um, which was a dissenting sort of religion. He had moved. He married someone called Sarah Taylor, who was a renowned uh, literist and, and writer in, in her own right um, and translator in her, her own right who came from quite a large prominent Unitarian family and the Unitarians were were usually influential in, in, in politics especially mm -hmm. um, at the time of the, the late sort of 18th early 19th century um, they'd been discriminated against and whatnot and, and William Blackstone in particular in his commentaries had um, had, had, had emphasised that the, the criminalisation of Unitarianism should go on. Um, so he moved to London and he became part of the Benthamite circle. Mm -hmm. um, that they all lived in the same neighbourhood. There was a handful of them. Um, he claimed, an early Austin claimed, um, to be Bentham's disciple okay. in his earlier years. He really, he really uh, enjoyed the utilitarianism. Uh, and, and appreciated the utilitarianism of, of Jeremy Bentham and, and Jeremy Bentham's ideas. Uh, however, put him into his place, his context, uh, this was an age of reform with the culmination of the Parliamentary Reform Act of 1832. Um, so Austin was, was lecturing in, originally lecturing in 1828 in, in this area. Uh, there was a lot of discourse at the time in these circles about what um, law and in particular rights um, should be about and it, the background to it, the context to it uh, was what happened with the French revolutions mm -hmm. of, of the sort of seven, around 1790. Um, they distanced themselves from this idea of um, natural rights, natural law and because of the rhetoric that was coming out of, of 
after the, the aftermath of the French Revolution, the, the, the intellectual debate, particularly amongst the Unitarians at the time, of which John Austin was part, was what, what do rights look like? Are rights natural mm -hmm. um, or not? And they wanted to infuse a scientific idea, which came from his Unitarianism, um, uh, a, a scientific idea into um, what morals should be about. And also, if we're going to reform law in this way and reform politics in this way, we need to identify what law is. Now, when John Austin was lecturing, you have to bear in mind he was lecturing at London University, now UCL, on what some argue was the first law degree as we know it today, although mm -hmm. there's some debate on that. Um, but it was certainly the early periods of, of legal education, or right at the start of legal education. Um, and he wanted to identify law simply as a pragmatic approach for, his, for what would go on to be future lawyers. Um, bearing in mind, previous to that, for somebody who wanted to become a lawyer, uh, they would go through, they would perhaps study moral philosophy or something, something similar mm -hmm. at, at Oxford and Cambridge, uh, may even come from a theological background, and then go on to learn law through the Inns of Court as an apprentice or as a pupil. And, um, and, but now what we've got is, is the London University offering what the, is the beginnings of the law degree, of a law degree as we know it, offering a, essentially a pragmatic approach and they're offering this, this idea of doing law but absence of all, absent of all these influenced, influential ideas of natural law, natural rights that essentially you find through the Oxbridge right. universities. Um, so, so inevitably they would distance themselves from, from that. In your, in your seminar today, you said something about Austin as the index, indexalizer, or he would like to index <coughs> law. So is this part of the, the teaching way that he did at what is now UCL? Yeah. Um, at the time, well, Austin only lectured for two years. Mm -hmm. his, his, um, his lectures were said to be boring. <laughs> uh, and was said was said to be um, quite dismal. He would read straight okay. from they were written out. Oh, just like philosophy lectures today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and 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 his numbers dwindled down, and he was paid very much on student numbers. Mm -hmm. um, so a bit like an early student evaluation form. They, they, they sort of weren't very good. Yeah. On 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 his his things. So so you know inevitably changed, but but in, he resigned his post after a couple of years. But in those two years, he. Um, he also wanted to teach, which he did teach ethics, but it was an ethics that that was far removed from the the Oxford Cambridge idea of ethics. Um, and and for John Austin, he he taught law as being, or he wanted the reform to be, law indexed to his idea of divine law, mm -hmm. which was a a theological understanding of utilitarianism. Okay. Um, uh, and and um, and certain laws that were revealed in Scripture. Now, throughout his work of the province of jurisprudence, determined that there are three of his six lectures are devoted to ethics, divine law, and utilitarianism as being part of that that divine law, that ethical plan. The thing is with Austin, though, how he defined a theological utilitarianism, so the greatest happiness for the greatest amount of people, which he sees part of God's plan. Mm -hmm. He defined that happiness, the, the, the growth of happiness, as he equated happiness to, to wealth maximization and, and capital, the growth of capital. Okay. For him, and, and he said this was part of God's plan, so this was part of his, his theology. 
So in linking his religious ideas to essentially his politics, um, law could complement that for him. So, so his ideas of um, the sovereign issuing a command backed with either a fear advantage or, 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 a, or a sanction was essentially aimed towards what he classes as the labouring classes. Okay. Um, the bulk of humankind. He says in Province of Jurisprudence determined that these um, that the the bulk of humankind do not know morality. They do not, and he also speaks about that they do not have the same interests as the propertied classes, mm -hmm. um, or essentially as political superiors or superiors who he classes as which as propertied classes in in some of his political pamphlets. And so his utilitarianism was essentially an economic, an early economic, right. Theory that he tries attaching to theology, mm -hmm. and and for him, because the bulk of humankind do not act in a way that is in the interest of property, in the interest of the accumulation of wealth, in the interest of capital, they need to be guided in that so-called morality of 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 um, that that that, um, that so-called morality that, that he refers to. Sort of the idea of laws as in a, a being taught to. Um, civilized into by others, mm -hmm. um, which we're going to talk later about in when we talk about international law. Uh, so can you tell us more about that? About international law? No, no, uh, <laughs> later. Um, so we, uh, about um, Austin's idea of uh, teaching law to the masses or uh, how do we get from divine law to positive law to... Um, yeah, he sees... Um, Positive law as as just as important as positive morality, mm -hmm. which tends to get dismissed in um, in much of my, the mainstream thinking. And he talks about the bulk of humankind being educated in morals, um, and this education comes from positive morality. So the idea we can talk about morality and we can we, we can have a sort of moral relativist approach. Mm -hmm. Which comes, which again comes, brings his utilitarianism into that, and and particularly his wife Sarah spoke um, about education, or she translated works from German and pushed ideas of reforming education. And I, I do think this is more of a a sort of a sort of double approach between John Austin and his wife. His wife did, did talk about some of these ideas within education. But for positive law, as far as positive law goes, that was the coercive angle. So, so, so people need to learn by being forced to act okay. in this way in, in the interest of property. Mm -hmm. And then by doing so, his theory goes is that um, people will instinctively learn, coupled with education, people will be instinctively learn, the bulk of the masses will instinctively learn the ways of, of, of the property sort of classes. Okay. And... Um, uh, and, and then he acts instinctively, and this comes from, and he talks about um, an association of ideas theory, which is a sort of Lockean idea, or it also comes from a guy called David Hartley, which I think is the 15th or 16th century. And, and it's a bit like early operant conditioning that we have in psychology today. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of Pavlov's dogs that you can, you couple, you couple an action with an idea, and, and essentially you will learn that by just keep yeah, repeating just the, the same. reflex. Yeah, he yeah. repeated the same. So that was John Austin's ideas uh, and that he tried to link to theology. And, and positive law was the tools to be able to implement those mm -hmm. ideas into society. So that's how sort of we go from divine law to positive law to um, 
teaching them at as, as yeah as Austin spoke about positive law and positive morality as being which he spoke about later mm -hmm. in a later writing as being um, part of the vast organic whole so it, it speaks about which is about this idea of society evolving and changing and being organic it comes from the historical school of jurisprudence in Germany and um, and, and and he learned which he he learned when he went to Germany and they speak about positive law in that sort of sort of manner. Yeah. yeah. So let's go now a little bit to international law. In times of Austin, um, so this is post-Congress of Vienna, um, so this is a time of big European diploma diplomacy um, and growth of empires. Um, and back in that time, he would say that international there, there wasn't such a thing as international law. It was uh, positive morality. So what led him to that conclusion? Uh, and would he have a different conclusion today? Interesting question, and that's the, the central theme of my thesis, Okay. Um, uh, which I'm currently working on uh, now. So we know it's all um, preliminary. Yes, yeah. Um, so I think what's of interest to me when he referred to international law as positive morality, um, the way that international legal theory speak about that is that they see this as a starting point. Austin denied international law. He's really called law because it lacks its sovereign which is the interpretation of, of, of what Austin sort of said, this decentralised way of, of looking at international law. But the word international law, the term international law was, was quite new for John Austin. It was invented by Jeremy Bentham mm -hmm. as a term prior to that. It was called the law of nations. The law of nations primarily, or particularly, you have to, be, you have to put this into context that a lot of this is a response to William Blackstone. William Blackstone, when William Blackstone spoke about the law of nations, he was looking for the usefulness of the law of nations within the common law. That essentially that, that, that the common law and the courts could, could dip into the ideas around the law of nations, treat the, that the individual in the court could use these ideas and it would be enforced by the court. So um, Blackstone was basically an internal view of international law. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Jeremy Bentham, mm -hmm. when Jeremy Bentham referred to international law as being the law of nations, Jeremy Bentham introduces an idea of um, of states having legal personality. Right. Um, so there is a distinct difference, even though I would argue that Jeremy Bentham probably, or, or I may well argue, because I'm in my early stages <laughs> of this, that Jeremy Bentham... Um, has a misunderstanding of, of, of Blackstone and, and um, states having a legal personality is new to that discourse. And John Austin picks up these ideas from Jeremy Bentham about what international law is, um, or what international law should be. Exactly, they're, they're, they're gardens back to, <laughs> to each other, they were part of the same intellectual circle. What John Austin says about international law, or what's classed as international law, that it was essentially diplomacy between princes, mm -hmm. European princes. And when you bear in mind this is coming off the back of the Congress of Vienna um, at the time period, that, that the Congress of Vienna was, was European princes negotiating yes. the, the, the... End of the Napoleonic of, Wars, basically. Yeah. Um, uh, so when John Austin denies that international law can truly be called law because it lacks this, this centralised sort of sovereign or sovereign power, um, I think essentially what he's looking at is correct. It's, that's not international law as we know it today. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, certainly far from what we know today. It's a different baby. Um, we could 
call what John Austin was looking at as the diplomacy of European principles. Mm -hmm. However, international legal theory's starting point, when it t tends to, or when people come up with theories, the starting point does tend to be, is international law truly called law? And the starting point is Austin, Austin's denial of international law is truly called law. But, but we're looking at two different species. And, and so my view is that John Austin today would, would have no problem in seeing a positive international law mm -hmm. as opposed to positive morality. He refers to a sovereign power, not as a sovereign sort of body. He's more referring to the power, power of sovereign, the sovereign. And one thing that he he refers to, he, he's quite open on the idea of sovereign. In in the, it comes from an Aristotle's from Aristotle's ideas about an oligarchy, um, aristocracy. He talks right. about democracy, um, and this is what I'm currently looking at. So, and he uses those three phases that, that come from Aristotle. Um, and he doesn't talk too much about an oligarchy. Because what the sovereignty that he's looking at of the day, the problem mm -hmm. wasn't so much in existence, it's a lot more aristocratic and democratic sort of types of sovereignty. But knowing that an oligarchy is based on, on wealth uh, and wealth creation and the, the, the idea of, of wealth, of people coming together, particularly in the ancient Greek city-states based on wealth and ruling masses. Um, when we look at international law of today, particularly the P5 that operates with a veto power at the UN Security Council, so we're talking... Russia, United States, China, France, the United Kingdom, as it was, or the power that they had back when the UN Charter was formed. Yep. I think that, or my view is, is that John Austin would have no problem in identifying them as some sort of sovereign power. Mm -hmm. he, he goes to great lengths to describe sovereignty as, as when a number of states or a number of countries can come together and form a sovereign power. And he uses examples such as the early, when, when, Germany was first formed, the Confederation of the States coming together, forming a sovereign power. He uses the United States as an example, bearing in mind his, his time period is only a few decades after the, the independence of the United States. Yep. Um, he uses the US Constitution as being, he talks about the sovereign power existing um, amongst all those states coming together and being the Constitution being part of it. So he's not really identifying a body, he's just identifying where that sovereign power, if we can call it sovereign yep. power, exists. So, um, so I, I can't see how John Austin would have a problem in identifying the P5 as, as being this sort of sovereign power through through the way that the United Nations Charter has been used to essentially maintain a status quo based on, on wealth in, in international law. So I come from a sort of critical legal perspective, critical perspective on international law. Okay. And I think that um, that that some of Austin's work, or, or what Austin has to say about positive law can be synthesised to, or I can't see a problem with it being synthesised to a critical understanding of international law. Okay, so what would what would that critical understanding of international law be in this sense? So in, in the sense that, um, that when the UN Charter was first formed, it maintained the power relations mm -hmm. in, in between states it maintained political superiority. Bear in mind, John Austin says positive law is political superiors guiding political inferiors. Right. Um, so it maintained the political superiority of those that had the wealth at the time of the UN Charter was created. And, um, and it was for the guidance of what he classes as political inferiors. So obviously during the 1960s, we had decolonialisation and, and a number of states were then you know, signed the UN Charter. But perhaps didn't international law maintains that status quo whereby um, 
whereby those big players on the international stage still have that power. I usually say when it comes to the, the current status of international law is that we are um, trying to run a high-speed internet through 1950s uh, infrastructure. That's interesting. Um, or in that sense, we, we have infrastructure that is 60 years old, 70 years old, uh, and we're trying to use it for current world problems um, and whether we're going to be able to work it out. It's a bit, it's a big in the air yeah. at the moment. <clears throat> yeah, um, but, but interestingly, when we, when we talk about the reform mm -hmm. of international law, particularly in the UN Council, Security Council, um, the, the debate about that being reformed tends to be based on those countries today that have power through wealth. Yep. So, so you know, any any talk about the United Nations Security Council reform is, is should we include India on there? Germany. Should we include Germany. Mm. Should the UK lose its seat? It was particularly in the, after Brexit or, yeah. or, or whatever. <laughs> um, and, and it tends to be about power. Still about about it's the power. It's those that hold the power through wealth or through through capital or, or whatever that, that that perhaps those should sit on that seat. So I don't think that sovereign power would. Or, that, or I think John Austin would argue that sovereign power would vanish. It's just the, the, the sort of change. The in people, the well, it's not the people, the the, the representatives to get in there. Mm. Um, it will just be different, but it's still based on on wealth and, on wealth and, and, and power. power. Yeah. Um, uh, and that's where I think Austin Austin would go with it. So that's my that that's where I'm going with my thesis. Mm -hmm. That um, uh, that this is what Austin would say about about international law um, and, and that power at the top of international law and um, and challenge perhaps the consent model um, that, that is in, in international yep. law um, or challenge it to an, an extent and, and I think even more so today in the last decade or two you know in, the, in this so-called age of terrorism war against terrorism kind of kind of thing that the UN Security Council and those P5 are are using mechanisms within the United Nations to to um, maintain that that sort of power and almost becoming the, the law is being sort of the infamous Cardi case. Um, so the interesting part about that is that even though the adjudication in the European Court of Justice sort of put a stop on the Security Council putting people on terrorist lists just on some uh, just on yesterday the US or Chinese or whoever diplomat is in the room suggestion, um, it still didn't stop legally the possibility for them to do the same in the future. So the Security Council still technically has that Chapter 7 power mm. to do, to enact the same thing that uh, they did to Qadi and to countless others that were put on the terrorist list. Uh, for instance, China, I know, used uh, their influence to put a um, a a Muslim cultural organization on that terrorist list and then move back now 10-15 years with the situation of the Uyghurs in China how that is sort of a prelude to this that's uh, interesting so that's that's some that's, I think that's going to be some, something I'm going to be looking at uh, there, there's several there articles on yeah, this okay. I can send them to you yeah that would be fantastic um, alright so thank you very much um, you. for this chat um, we'll hopefully have you again another time thank you very Thank you very much for listening to this episode. I'm Marian Ayevsky and I'm the research fellow at the law school. If you want to find out more about us or Paul Dale, 
click on the links below in the notes. Farewell and hope to see you again.